Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. This is the first of two episodes where we shine the spotlight on China, which is front and center on the world stage today. Part one will cover China's ascendancy over the last four decades and the pressures those in President Xi Jinping's administration face to sustain and even exceed its high historical growth rate. Here to talk with us today, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Stephen Roach, a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson School of Global Affairs and a senior lecturer at the Yale School of Management. Stephen was previously the chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia and the firm's chief economist. Stephen has authored a number of pieces on the Chinese-American relationship, including most recently a book entitled Unbalanced, The Codependency of America and China. Stephen is also a voice in the industry that I have followed very closely over the years. We're so excited to have you here today, Stephen, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Tony. It really a, a privilege to get to chat with you about this topic in particular, because it, it is such an interesting topic and such a timely topic. So today's first episode is going to focus on the past, and the second episode is going to focus on where we're going in terms of the specific relationship between the U.S. and China. But in terms of the past, we're going to focus on China itself. So let's start off with level setting for the audience. China has been on the rise on the global stage since the 1970s. It's exceeded Japan as the world's second largest economy. And by certain measures, including purchasing power parity, which is one, Stephen, that I know that you've cited in many cases, it actually exceeds the U.S. um, as the largest economy in the world. So I guess the starting point is just how extraordinary is the success story compared to growth trends we've seen out of other emerging economies? Well, Tony, we've never seen a um, development story unfold with both the scale and the speed that China has been able to pull off since the late 1970s. And uh, in and of itself, that is, puts China in a very unique position in the annals of uh, economic development. Back in the late 70s, China was really on the brink of a, a failed economic system. It had come out of two decades of turmoil, social, political, and economic, under um, the leadership of uh, Mao Zedong. Two experiments in particular, the Great Leap Forward of the late 50s and early 60s, and then the infamous Cultural Revolution of the mid-60s to the mid-70s, uh, really pushed China to the brink. When Mao died in 1976, there was a leadership struggle, and out of that struggle emerged a, a small man with a big vision, Deng Xiaoping, who was very uh, taken with the notion that China had to figure out uh, a way to grow and do it quickly, or the system that had been formed under great cost during the, the revolution of the 1940s would not survive. And so Deng Xiaoping um, put ideology aside, was was very focused on uh, what he called a fact-based assessment of um, economic growth prospects, and um, focused on exports and investment uh, as the two main levers uh, of economic growth. And it worked uh, like a charm. Beginning in the early 1980s, China experienced 30 years of 10% growth. 
And over that period, its per capita income increased by over 25-fold. And there was an extraordinary reduction of poverty, depending on how you measure it. By World Bank metrics, a reduction of poverty of over 400 million uh, Chinese citizens over that period. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a unique and powerful story. And the question we'll try to get to is, is that sustainable in the future? And is that the, the story that you're telling? It, we often think of China today still, but and this may actually be an outdated conception. We still tend to think of China as the manufacturer of the world. So that the policies that you're talking about that took hold in the 80s and really prevailed for a number of decades, are those the policies that when we often think of China pivoting from an agrarian to a manufacturing-led uh, economy and pulling people out of the fields and putting them into the factories that, that accompanied or, or drove that increase in affluence? The manufacturing prowess of Chinese um, workers and managers and the state-owned uh, apparatus certainly was uh, a critical trigger to this development miracle. And that manufacturing base was um, absolutely essential, as you alluded to, uh, to absorb the relatively impoverished uh, surplus labor that was residing mainly in the Chinese uh, countryside. But, um, you know, today China is still uh, the, the world's largest manufacturer, but increasingly its manufacturing has moved from low value added, you know, shoes and clothing to just name a couple of the more popular items to increasingly high value added in technology equipment, uh, capital goods, motor vehicles uh, and the like. And uh, China's also become as much of an assembler through uh, China-centric supply chains, bringing in inputs from other countries around the world, but especially its neighbors in East Asia, to uh, uh, operate as not just a manufacturing machine, but an, but an assembly platform for, for many of the goods that we consume in the United States. You know, the, the best example is probably the phone you're staring at right now as we talk, made all over the world, designed in Cupertino, California, but assembled right. largely in Suzhou, China. But there's a lot more to the story, right? In other words, they made a more deliberate decision at some point in the last decade or so to try to not be only a manufacturing economy but and an investment-led economy, but to, to shift towards, as you've talked about it in your book, a uh, much more consumption-driven society and, and economy. Can you talk to us about why do they feel they needed to do that? Everything seemed to be working so well. What is the consequence of them, them doing that in terms of their overall economic trajectory? Well, um, you're alluding to what I have written about for years is um, largely a pivotal moment in the evolution of the Chinese economy that I would date specifically to uh, March of 2007. At that point in time, the former premier of China, Wen Jiabao, was giving the premier's annual press conference uh, after the conclusion of the National People's Congress, an annual gathering of China's legislators. And he led off his press conference with a startling statement that, that said, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, that while the Chinese economy looks strong on the surface, beneath the surface, 
It is increasingly uh, unstable, unbalanced, uncoordinated, and ultimately unsustainable. That sort of um, rather paradoxical statement for an economy that had been growing, um, you know, at that point, 10% uh, for nearly 30 years, set off um, an extraordinary debate in terms of um, what the premier was alluding to and how a Chinese strategy needed to be adapted to dealing with uh, what we then called, um, in shorthand, the four uns, un- unbalanced, unstable, uncoordinated, and unsustainable. And out of that debate came the decision that China could achieve better balance by moving away uh, to a services-based consumer-led economy. And that's been the focus of the Chinese rebalancing story for the years that have followed. But it all began with almost a self-critical statement by former Premier Wen Jiabao in 2007. Well, it's interesting to compare and contrast that to the way our economy evolves, because they're said to have a managed economy. And it's that type of sort of self meta self-consciousness probably wouldn't be possible here, given our system. But it's so, so interesting to hear the story of, of how they're able to pivot so consciously there. So now that they've made this this shift, what are the the major elements or the building blocks, if you will, of this new internal consumption or consumer-led led approach, which I know is not exclusive, it's complementary to the continuing manufacturing? Well, I think that's right. You, you can't, they're not looking to flip a switch and go from one economy to another. Uh, again, the word is balance as a response to the diagnosis by Premier Wen as unbalanced. So they, they, they do want a blend of both the earlier approach and a, um, a newer approach. There are three building blocks to any consumer society, and China is not an exception to this, in, in my opinion. One uh, is more jobs, and they're doing this by uh, shifting economic support to their services sector, which is relatively undeveloped, and early-stage services are a very uh, worker or labor-intensive endeavor. Two, boosting real wages, and, and they're doing this by shifting uh, workers and their families from rural areas to urban areas where the, the income differential is two and a half to three times in the urban areas. And then the third one is dealing with what had been a relatively poor social safety net in terms of health care and retirement to better enable Chinese families when they get the new income through jobs and urbanization to have the confidence to spend it. In terms of assessing their progress on the road to consumption-led growth, they've been pretty good at services and at urbanization, but they have been um, deficient in really uh, addressing these safety net issues. And, you know, certainly the health crisis that China and and others, including the United States, are facing in this COVID environment um, uh, underscore serious impacts that an inadequate safety net uh, can have on consumer societies. I think it's interesting to pause from the economic story and just think about the political story. Because I think that it's going to be relevant in our second episode when we think about the pressures that are on the political apparatus in China. The way we've talked about it, it really feels like these changes are driven by a very self-conscious 
need on the part of the leadership in China to be able to maintain a certain measure of growth and income growth um, and job growth, et cetera, real wage growth in order to keep the expectations of the people, if you will, satisfied around their their future and where they're going as a society. And that that expectation really has a big puts a big pressure or a big weight on the the viability of the the leadership. Do, do we have that basically right, you think? It may sound um, a little strange to talk about political pressures in an authoritarian one-party system such as that would exist in China, but it's a fair point. The leadership is accountable to the people. Well, they don't have elections the way we do in a democracy like the United States or elsewhere around the world. When um, there's a problem on the growth front, uh, the leadership is held accountable for that. There have not been problems on the growth front since the days of Deng Xiaoping in um, the, the late 1970s. But if and when the day comes where there's a major protracted shortfall of economic growth, I think that will be a, a very disturbing development for the, the credibility and support of the, the Chinese leadership to say nothing of the stability of the, the governing political apparatus, the, the Chinese Communist Party. So stability and growth uh, are everything for the legitimacy uh, of the party and holding the reins of power. And Xi Jinping, the current leader of China, has um, no different than his predecessors in recognizing his responsibility to deliver the type of growth that the sustainable leadership model of the party uh, requires. And while growth has slowed in recent years, in part because of you know shocks around the world, the global financial crisis, and now this horrific crisis associated with the COVID pandemic. You know, there's a lot of appreciation uh, within China for the fact that these are circumstances beyond China's control. But if growth were to slow because of a, a political misadventure, misadventure, an accident in terms of wrong policies, wrong strategies, corruption or other measures that leaders might be accountable for, then then the political uh, feedback loop would really become much more problematic than it has been in China since the days of Deng Xiaoping. So we talked about these different purposeful chapters of the economic development of China that are very purposefully designed and executed by the, by the leadership. We had this very purposeful manufacturing stage. And then we pivoted to complement that as that became more advanced with the consumption, increase of jobs and, and real wages, et cetera. And it feels like under the ascendancy of Xi Jinping that there's a third chapter. Now, this may be amplified in some unfair way by the media here in the U.S. in light of the relationship and the tension, the political tension with the U.S. and China. But it feels like there's another stage that they've entered into where somehow, for some reason, the manufacturing plus the domestic consumption organically wasn't enough. Something happened where, whether it was on the ambition side, for some reason they wanted to rival the U.S. or exceed the U.S., or whether it was perhaps oligopic type of feelings in the, the leadership that they wanted more. I'm not sure why, but it, it seems like we arrived at a point recently where their 
consumption of external technologies and their desire to lead uh, or their need to lead has become a predominant feature of their economy and, and, and existence. Do I have it wrong or do you think there's something new that's happening? And if so, why? Well, I think you're uh, you're coming close to, um, you know, what is a absolutely critical issue for this next stage of Chinese um, uh, economic development, and that is the role that um, indigenous innovation plays in creating um, uh, the, the conditions for high-income, uh, very prosperous uh, economies. And so China has climbed up the development sweepstakes, as we said at the outset, at a speed that we've never seen, but it's now at this middle income level where most economic development trajectories get into trouble. Very few economies are able to move through this middle income threshold uh, without experiencing uh, an accident, a, um, you know, a stalling out, uh, or possibly even uh, a relapse. Many economists have studied this phenomenon uh, over the the last few decades, and, and we tend to call it um, the middle-income trap. And the main feature of the middle-income trap is that you don't shift the sourcing of your technology from uh, foreign innovation to homegrown or indigenous innovation. So China knows this, its leadership knows this, um, they've studied this very carefully, and the, the push to homegrown or indigenous innovation is really central uh, to um, China's very ambitious uh, growth aspirations uh, over the next uh, 30 years. Uh, and I think, you know, actually they're making excellent progress, not without pushback from the rest of the world, especially the United States. Areas like uh, e-commerce, fintech, life sciences, AI, and many of their new generation technology uh, uh, industries, the progress they've made has been uh, nothing short of astonishing over the last seven or eight years. Uh, and this is central to whether or not China can take it to the next level. Let me just ask you one last question, just to dig a, a bit deeper on this final point, because it seems to me that it's a bit of a fine line between what you refer to as sort of homegrown innovation versus potentially one might think of as appropriation of innovations or technologies from other countries. And so when you think about what's happened in China to date, has it been primarily a story of China being able to advance its own internal capabilities around creation and innovation? Or has it been a story of appropriation of you know, other people's ideas and thoughts. And that's where I think, at least on this superficially, other countries, including the U.S., seem to be more upset. Well, you're right about them being upset. And this battle over intellectual property rights for what we call forced technology transfer, where multinational partners with China are required to give up their proprietary insights to their Chinese partners, cyber espionage and the like, this is the essence of the the great trade conflict and trade dispute that's um, been very much in evidence uh, really over the last two and a half years. In March of 2018, 
the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer published a detailed 182-page um, report charging China with serious array of unfair trading practices. And um, that formed the intellectual basis for the imposition of widespread tariffs that have been put in, in place since the middle of 2018. And the broad consensus in Washington is that China has moved ahead and stated its claims on being a, a, a global technology leader uh, within a relatively short period of time on terms that we deem to be unfair and unacceptable. I have to say, and this might be a controversial uh, point, having read the report, the 182-page report issued by uh, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer in March of 2018, that the case he makes on all of these key issues, intellectual property theft, forced technology transfer, even cyber hacking, uh, is a weak case. It's not a strong case. The evidence in most cases would not hold up in a U.S. court of law. And so this is a very contentious, very important, but very contentious set of allegations. And it has enormous stakes for not just the future of U.S.-China relations, but really the way in which um, technology is integrated into the global economy of the future. And that's why I sort of use this term fine line, because it seems that whether China is doing it on their own, whether they're on the right side of the, the debate or whether they're on the wrong side of the debate through unfair appropriation is, is a bit of a gray area. Uh, and I will get into this in the next episode. So let me, uh, if I could just summarize, I think what are the three key takeaways from today's episode. First is that China's rapid growth since the 1970s is really quite unique among developed stories in the emerging world and really owing largely to their very effective managed economy and their focus on exports um, and manufacturing in the early stage of this growth explosion that they've had. This is the second takeaway. The continuation of this growth story has been dependent on the ability of the Chinese economy to shift towards a more domestic consumption-based economy, one with higher real wages, one with more organic internal technology creation and development, and they've largely succeeded with that. And then last is the Chinese leadership is looking to leverage their economic power now on the world stage and is really setting up confrontations. I would, I would like to say potential confrontations, but a lot of these confrontations, as we know, with the U.S. are, are now very present um, and that it's going to be very critical in understanding how they play out to see where the line is drawn between the, the fair and the unfair use and development of technology. So um, we look forward to exploring these ideas in, the, in our second episode. So I want to thank you, Stephen, again, for all your great thoughts today. Thank you, Tony. Uh, you terrific questions and look forward to probing this a bit further in the second installment of this conversation. Uh, and thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Join us for part two as we discuss the U.S.-China relationship specifically, including international technology disputes, whether or not we're entering potentially a new Cold War, if not a hot war, hopefully not. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel. 
to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. 2021 M&T Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved.